1: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new episodes every Thursday. Just make sure to subscribe. Today, many histories converge women's history, political history, royal family history, and Indian and British imperial history, all told through the story of one woman. Princess, campaigner for women's votes, and goddaughter of Queen Victoria, Sophia Juleep Singh.
0: Life, strive, these two are one. Nought can ye win but by faith and daring on.
1: That was one of the suffragette songs performed when a blue plaque honouring Sophia Juleep Singh was unveiled at her former home, Faraday House, in southwest London, in May 2023. And joining me to discuss Sophia's remarkable story and the blue plaque honouring her achievements are our two expert guests presenter and historian Anita Arnand, who is the author of a book about Sophia Juleep Singh, and historian Susan Sked. Before talking about Sophia, let's start with her family. Who were her parents, and where were they from in India? Anita.
2: Well, her father was a man called Maharaja Dalip Singh, the last Maharaja of the Punjab, who came to the throne at the age of five after the death of his father, who is really very, very famous in India, even more famous than Dalip Singh. He was called the Lion of Punjab, Ranjit Singh. So it was a, a very noble Sikh family, the Sikh empire of Punjab. Duleep Singh, though, when he's just a boy king, is forced to sign over his kingdom and his wealth and his future to the British when he's just a little boy. He comes to Great Britain to meet Queen Victoria, is enveloped in the, in the royal family by Victoria's family. And when he does marry, because he's still an outsider, because even though he is part of the court, he's not marriage material for white noble women. So he seeks about to find somebody who's as much of an outsider as he is. And he writes to a, a Christian mission in Cairo saying, Look, I want a virginal young bride, and she has to be unspoiled. And so he ends up being matchmade. It's an arranged marriage, if you like, something that his mother would have done if he was still with her, to a daughter of a German merchant and an Abyssinian slave who has never seen the real world. She's been brought up in a cloister in Cairo. And it is a very unlikely marriage because she speaks not one word of English and he speaks not one word of Arabic. So their marriage vows are translated. She's very beautiful. He in his time was very handsome. And for a while, it is a marriage of unequals and not the happiest of marriages.
1: Crikey. That's an interesting start to the story already, isn't it? Lots of uncertainty. How did the children that this couple eventually have and how did the family come to live in England?
2: Well, I mean, the family is in England because Maharaja Dilip Singh is living in exile. So for a while, he's transported elsewhere to India. But on his 15th birthday, he describes this desire to go and see the Maharani of the world, who is Queen Victoria at that time. And she herself is obsessed with him because he is beautiful. He has very good manners. And he converts to Christianity. So for her, he he could almost be a gateway to the Christianization of her Eastern Empire. So when he says he wants to come and visit at the age of 15, she welcomes him, even though her advisors say, don't let him come. You know, it just gets to these heathen princes' heads if you give them this favor. And so he will live out the rest of his, well, the majority of his life in England until he falls out with said Queen Victoria quite dramatically. But when he marries, they settle down in a place called Elverdon. It's on the border of Norfolk and Suffolk. And he creates for himself in the middle of the the British countryside, a Mughal palace, the kind of place he will really never see again, the Lahore of his childhood. So it's replete with Indian carvings and rugs and furs and tiger skins. And it's also on the outside, it's got leopard pens outside the children's nursery. And he fills the aviaries with exotic Indian parrots and he loves to go hawking. So even though these poor Indian hawks hate the cold and fall out of the sky regularly, he's spending a vast fortune on sort of recreating the childhood that he's lost. And then these children come one after the other after the other. And poor Maharani Bamba, his poor, virginal, young wife, who was only really 16 when she got married, is almost permanently pregnant throughout their marriage. So they have one child who dies, then they have Victor, then they have Frederick, then they have Bamba, then they have Catherine, then they have Sophia, and then they have another little boy called Edward. So you know this poor woman is in a state of exhaustion, but their home in Elverdon becomes a magnet for anyone who's anyone. So the Prince of Wales, Bertie, who's going to be the future King Edward Seventh, is a regular visitor. All dukes and duchesses want to be seen in this Crazy place. You know, it is outstandingly different in Britain. And he's also set up one of the greatest hunting estates in Britain. He's a fantastic crack shot. He has a record for the biggest bag, the the greatest number of birds you can shoot out of the sky. So it becomes almost like this mogul pleasure palace in the middle of the English countryside. And that is where Sophia first establishes herself as a child of a Maharaja and becomes photographed here. So there are many, many photographs, because Singh Sing's also an, an amateur photographer. And that's why we have every chapter of her life documented so very beautifully in pictures.
1: When and where was Sophia born? Was it on this estate in Elverdon?
2: No, she was actually born a stone's throw away from Buckingham Palace in Belgravia. But she moved as a baby, though the estate already existed. So, there was a convalescent home in Belgravia, which is where she was born, but then whisked off into the middle of what really was ostensibly a madhouse in the middle of the English countryside.
1: Why do you describe it as a madhouse?
2: Well, I don't know many places where a child would go playing in the garden. And, you know, <laughs> I found newspaper cuttings in the time about a very bad tempered baboon who was constantly fighting with a local jackdaw. And you know, royalty traipsing in and out, the sound of gunfire punctuating your childhood—a nursery with leopards growling in the morning to wake you up, rather than birdsong. It was a place of parties and connections, and so the children, you know, were cloistered in their nursery, but exposed to all of this. And you see in the photography of the time an increasingly dejected mother who is exhausted by constant childbirth and child rearing, but also is completely out of place. You know, there are these photographs with her, with the Duchess of Athol and the Duke of Fnafana and all these places. And she's getting increasingly diminished less and less because her husband is losing interest in her. She's not able to give him the conversation and the society that he craves, but he's chosen an outsider and he makes her even more of an outsider.
1: At this point, I presume they're able to communicate fairly well, are they? Are they speaking English?
2: They only speak English. I mean, these children are are, are brought up in Britain. They've been given Christian names. Sophia, importantly, has her godmother's name. So Dilip Singh is a favourite of Buckingham Palace and Queen Victoria. He's such a favourite that he's often whisked away to the Isle of Wight and Osborne House, which is the inner sanctum for Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. But her middle name, because Queen Victoria is her godmother, is Alexandrovna. Now, that's not exactly Queen Victoria's name. It was Alexandrina. But Dilip Singh also li- always liked to put a bit of flourish on everything. So just slightly gave it a tweak to make him unique and special. And that's how he always wanted to feel. And when he didn't feel that anymore, that is what puts him on a collision course with the royal family.
1: Sophia herself, though, she has a series of siblings. Whereabouts does she fit within the arrival of the children?
2: So the oldest son dies in Scotland, and he's buried in Perthshire. You can still find his gravestone there. But then there is Prince Victor, her eldest brother, then Prince Frederick. Then you have her eldest sister, Bamba, named after her mother. You then have Catherine, swan-necked, beautiful, elegant Catherine. Then you have Sophia. And then you have a little brother called Edward, who is only barely eighteen months apart from her. So they're almost like twins and they cleave to each other in some very touching portraits that I've seen. They are they are as close as twins can be. But Sophia always stands out as the most pleasant, the most docile. There are sort of reports written at the time that The other children are feisty, they're headstrong, they're difficult. Even her mother says, you know, of all my children, Sophia is the one that she breastfeeds herself because she's such a sweet little thing. And you also get that sense of affection, you know, docility about this little girl, which is just going to be completely contrary to who she turns out to become. When her father photographs her again and again and again, this cute little plump-cheeked, rosy-cheeked little child with these huge dark almond eyes with long eyelashes. So that is her place in the family. She's one of the youngest, but she's also the one that everybody is most fond of. She's not challenging in the nursery. She is biddable. And so everybody finds her easy company.
1: And yet um, later on in life becomes a a bit of a challenge for the royal family and um, the establishment, I suppose. What were Sophia's early experiences in life, like her education, the relationships with her other brothers and sisters?
2: Sophia is educated to the extent that girls were generally educated in that time. She could read, she could write. She was a very good musician, a very talented musician. She loved animals. Uh, she was a very talented horse rider from a very early age, but it wasn't something that was important. And the children, I think, suffered from some benign neglect from their parents. Their mother was, as I said, not very happy and was becoming more and more reliant on on alcohol to kind of get through. Her father was busy, <laughs> always entertaining or a man about town. He was you know, becoming quite the playboy in London, along with Bertie the future King Edward VII. So they were kind of left to their own devices. And as such, I mean, Victor and Frederick were were older. And so eventually, you know, they join the army and they leave. They go to Sandhurst and they're not around so much. But the sisters, the bond between the sisters is so very strong. Bossy Bamba, who tells everyone what to do and nobody likes her very much because she's quite shouty, quite headstrong and quite angry. She is brought up with this feeling that her family's been robbed, you know, she knows more about the history of India and the history of the Sikh empire than, than any of the siblings then there's Catherine who doesn't quite fit in and Sophia and they really look after their little sister they love her they, they call her baby Saf or little Saf and that's the, you know a very loving nickname for her but she in turn looks after Edward you know she is Edward's guardian angel in all of this sort of neglect and chaos that is their life in Alverdon she even though she's only you know, barely a year older is the one who mothers edward the most and the one he relies on the most
1: listening to this susan how would you begin to characterize the early sophia and her experiences within her family and growing up in england it's a sort of lots of contrasts going on really isn't it she's almost like a duck out of water
0: yes i think that's one of the fascinating things about her life and also her her future actions i think because she moves is in Im- Between two worlds, really. She's got the very formal court world of Queen Victoria, and she comes out as a debutante and, you know, as a lover of great jewels and fine dresses when she's a young woman, a young lady, I should say. And then she's got this extraordinary, unique upbringing in the wonderful setting of Elverton. But also, this is increasingly falling apart, this beautiful world that her father's created, albeit with all these emotional tensions within the family and within questioning his commitment as a father, and of course, the uncertainty about his political identity and future. So it's not a straightforward childhood. It looks wonderful in in a way. But as Anita, you've already said about from the photographs we see of the family, there's some unhappiness lurking. And a large part of that unhappiness is because of the rackety financial setup that the Maharaja has, really. Essentially, he's spending more than the government grant, which he was granted by Queen Victoria, is is bringing in in terms of income. He's lavishing hospitality on his royal and aristocratic guests, but he's running out of rope, really, financial rope, and this must have had an impact on all of the children. That sense that things are gradually falling apart, and yet, to outward appearances, absolutely this aspiring to be this elite aristocratic family. So it's it's a real blend. And I don't want to speculate, but it is interesting that that sense of trouble lurking. That in a way, when we look at how Sophia led her life subsequently. She had the sort of not just a conventional path, she had the alternative path. And I wonder whether that made it more possible for her in future to walk that slightly unconventional path.
1: Yes, it's almost as if the fractures within her family were things that she was looking to repair through other means later on in her, in her life. I'm, I'm no psychologist, but um, I think it's quite interesting that um, there's a lot of discord and dissonance in, in the early stages. And then this attempt to sort of maybe repair and improve later on through the um, votes for women work, etc., I
2: think I think it's maybe maybe more than that, actually. I think it's because, you know, first of all, she was closest to her sisters. So, you know, women mattered to her always. You know, they were her guardians. They were her saviours more than anyone else. But I think when we do get onto the suffragette chapter of her life, she finds her own family. You know, this is a family that she will do anything for. And that marks her out even as a child. You know, she is the one that all her siblings turn to when they need something, when they need to unburden, when they need help. They write to little Saf. To help them out and their letters exist you know we're very lucky that the letters do exist to her sadly her letters back have not been conserved and I'm, I'm always hunting out for them but you know I don't think she's trying to repair anything I think she is being created in an image that doesn't fit the time so she doesn't fit her family you know she's too brown to marry a white person too white to marry a brown person as you know Susan says she's a debutante at Buckingham Palace she has her coming out there Queen Victoria shows her special favour when she comes out. But she doesn't fit. And that actually puts her in a unique position to make up her own mind about things. And she has this very, for a woman of that era, an individuality and a strength of mind that is really very rare. You know, her her sister Bamba, I mentioned, hates the royal family. They all, because, as Susan pointed out, the financial matters put Dilip Singh on a collision course with Queen Victoria. It starts making him question how his fortune and his kingdom were taken that you know as a little boy he was forced to sign a document without anybody with him his mother's separated in a tower and locked away he has no friends around him how could this contract be legal so he starts to appeal against it and the family turn against the british you know the bamber in particular starts referring to queen victoria's mrs Fagin, the receiver of stolen goods but Hmm. what happens to sophia is that she starts to separate her own thinking from those who have always influenced her. She never does turn against Queen Victoria the same way. And I think that individuality is what gives her the strength later to embrace what is a terrorist cause in the day, the suffragette cause.
1: So she has this dual identity. How did Sophia come into the care of the British royal family as the goddaughter of Queen Victoria, Anita?
2: She came into Queen Victoria's orbit because at that time when she was born, you know, the family was still in favour. Duleep Singh was a favourite of of Queen Victoria. You know, she, she still loved him. And that's a controversial thing to say in India, but you can see that. Even when, you know, the first time he goes to Osborne House, he and Queen Victoria spend hours sketching each other, really tender, lovely little sketches that you can still find. There is affection, there. She writes about him in her diary affectionately because he's the kindest among the children who are running around Osborne House. You know, She has a little son called Prince Leopold who has haemophilia, who all the other rambunctious kids leave out of all the games. Dulic Do- does not. He scoops him up and puts him on his shoulders and makes him feel included. So at the time Sophia is born, there's still love there between them. He wears a cameo of Queen Victoria around his neck and he will wear one close to his heart for most of his life. So that is why she becomes the goddaughter, the favoured one. And that is how she comes to be part of this royal orbit, which after her coming out is a passport to every party you can imagine. You know, she's on everybody's must-have guest list because she is elegant and she is fashionable. Everything she wears becomes news. Everything she does becomes news stroke scandal. You know, she's one of the first women in Britain to ride a bicycle in public. In those days, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But women weren't meant to ride bicycles because the saddle was anatomically too exciting for them. So, you know, she sort of defies that convention. She becomes a champion dog breeder, which also, you know, that's sort of the pastime of aristocrats. But she does it her own way, either teeny tiny little Pomeranians or these enormous hounds that she borzois, that she, she breeds successfully and wins so the just beginning to be born, crafts competition that we know today. So um, she's sort of one foot in and one foot out of a rarefied atmosphere, if you like, and starting to develop her own sense of self that doesn't fit in either.
1: So what do we know about her feelings towards the British establishment? And what was her relationship with Queen Victoria like as she was growing up and becoming a young woman?
2: She loved Queen Victoria. You know, Queen Victoria was in many ways a good godmother to her, in the respect of, you know, Queen Victoria didn't like her sisters very much at all. But, you know, the coming out happens when Sophia is of age, and arguably her sisters are too old, but, you know, they get sort of lumped in as a twofer offer. And she has always taken an interest in Sophia's upbringing and training. She sends her tea sets. And beautiful dolls, so she can practice how to have good table manners, which she doesn't really bother with the others at all very much. Sophia is a visitor to Buckingham Palace. She's kind of singled out during her coming up because she receives a kiss from Queen Victoria. You know, these things make her fond of her. And like I said before, you know, whereas Bamba and Catherine would talk about Mrs. Fagin, she wouldn't. And when this terrible fracture happens between her father, who eventually loses all patience with the British and says, right, I'm going to take back my kingdom. He takes this crazy trip to India. He wants to go back to India when is only nine years old and reclaim his kingdom. This is going back a bit from the, the coming out and the debutantes. She gets arrested at Aden, along with the the whole of her family. So her very first arrest is when she's nine years of age. And it is Queen Victoria who steps in when the the father, the Maharaja, says, right, I have nothing to do with this family anymore. I'm going to fight for my kingdom. That's my obsession now. And he sends them back, penniless, broke. And it's Queen Victoria who steps in and, first of all, puts them in the shittiest refugee colony I've ever heard of in Claridge's and then moves them on and gives them people to look after them. People who are also spying on the family, but people who are supposedly meant to be there to keep them safe. So Sophia will always have that gratitude for Queen Victoria, never never turning against her as much as the others do.
1: Was Sophia, as she was growing up and becoming more known, was she a a well known figure in the in the newspapers, for example, and in the society scene?
2: She was. So Sophia was becoming very well known in society after her coming out. She was invited to everywhere that mattered. I mean, I, when I talk about her these days, I, I like to call her the Kardashian of her day and possibly my worst nightmare. You know, she was she would go to everything. She was out every night. And there's a nascent women's magazine publishing world that is being born at the same time. And they devour her. You know, they love pictures of her on her horses or with her horses or with her dogs or you know, if she wears emeralds one season, then emeralds are the things to have that season. So she's pretty much, you know, a pin-up princess, a paparazzi princess before we even have paparazzi. And her sisters mock her mercilessly and, and you know, in a good, humoured way because she's she's so in the news. And she starts to love it just a little bit.
1: would you concur with that then, Susan, that she's probably the first sort of celebrity royal with more exotic background that people wouldn't have seen before, I suppose?
0: Yes, and I think that's why she was absolutely perfect publicity material for the newspapers, both in her more conventional period of her life, at this point in the 1890s, when she, as Anita so beautifully described, she is in demand everywhere. And it's interesting to see again, the sort of the two worlds. So for instance, her brother Victor is sort of completing his assimilation within the British aristocratic circles of the day by his marriage to Lady Anne Coventry, and that's 1898. So it's not just her, it's, you know, they're embedded. And yet, I always wonder the impact on the fact that her two sisters, who are perhaps more ungovernable, were packed off to Somerville Hall by their then guardian, to attain a further degree of education, and yet Sophia isn't. And I always wonder, maybe that's a question for you, Anita, what impact that had that she was given the more sort of Kardashian role rather than allowed that higher education. So she was there to be an ornament, to sparkle, possibly to make a good marriage. I mean, what I find so, I mean, there's so many aspects of this that are shocking and sobering. The advice that Queen Victoria is believed to have given Victor and v- Victor's new wife, Lady Anne, is to say, but make sure you don't have any children. Mm. And that is, it brings you up short, and you suddenly realise it's participation, but very much on the British aristocratic terms, it's not equality. Would you say so, Anita?
2: I, I would 100% agree. Mm. I mean, you know, she—she. There there is no question that she's going to marry a white man. It's just not, it doesn't even enter. In fact, you know, sort of Queen Victoria starts casting about at one point, as she did for her father, to see whether there is a, a benign Indian potentate that she can be matched up with, preferably one who's converted to Christianity, just as she was searching for her father at one point when he was a young boy who, who was here. And I actually don't think the girls were sent away for their education. They were sent away. And there are letters that exist between you know, Colonel Oliphant, who is their guardian now, the man that you mentioned, who is also spying on the family. About these two unruly older sisters and how they are a malign influence on young Sophia, who is the jewel in this family. And so they're sent away not to improve them, but to improve her. Education is not important for women, but it gets them out of the way. They actually hate the setup that is granted to Sophia. So after her coming out, Elverdon by this time... Maharaja Dilip Singh is now an enemy of the state. He's tried to go back to India and cause an uprising. And so he's, he's sort of living in self-imposed exile in Paris at this time, still trying to stir up rebellion, failing at every turn. But Queen Victoria again steps in for, largely for Sophia and grants a grace and favour home in Hampton Court. It is Michael Faraday's old house. And she loves it there. Her sisters cannot bear it. Because all the other grace and favor apartments are largely, I shouldn't say all, largely they are taken up by heroes of the British Empire. You know, Heroes of the East India Company who acted in what the British call the Mutiny of 1857 or people who have served the British Raj well. And all Catherine and Bamba see around them are people who look down their noses at them, people who regard them as inferior. And somehow Sophia doesn't see that or doesn't take it seriously like the sisters do as soon as they're able to Catherine and Bamba leave Britain they can't bear it so Catherine goes off with her governess to go and live in a lesbian relationship in Germany which again you know each one of these characters deserves their own book Bamba first tries to become a doctor in America you know, even though, you know, she's, she's academically, she's all right. She's not brilliant, but she wants to be a doctor. She's got ambition. She wants to make a life for herself that doesn't involve Victoria, doesn't involve any of this stuff from her past. But while she's studying in Chicago, suddenly the university decides women can't be doctors. So just before her last year, you know, the, the whole course collapses and she has to come back for a while. And she's back at Faraday House and she hates it absolutely loathes it and is sort of begging Sophia let's go to India let's just go and live in India this is awful but Sophia doesn't feel Indian you know all she's known is Britain she's you know she's a British Asian she's one of the first British Asians born and brought up in this country so you know that actually does put a for the first time I think a little strain on the relationship between the sisters Bambo is always telling her you know you cannot trust these people look what they did to our father look what they did look what they took from us And she decides, actually, she's going to take people on their own merit. She's not going to be swept away on the all-powerful Bambas' words. And so she decides to stay even when both of her sisters leave, well, you know, well after Somerville, they're they're out of there. But she remains. But it's hard. It's very, very hard for her because she's all alone. So she starts sort of dwindling somewhat until there's going to be this one chance you know the sisters are, are reunited for a while there's going to be this one chance where they could do something together and it'd be lovely you know they could go to the greatest party the world has ever known the Delhi Darbar to celebrate the coronation of Edward Seventh. so in India this is a great opportunity for Britain to flex its muscles you know to say look Queen Victoria is gone we have a new monarch he is the emperor of India all bow down only problem is Edward can't be bothered to go, so he sends a proxy. But the sisters are dying to go. They're desperate. Duleep sings, though, are not welcome in India. They are seen as a problem. The boys are, anyway. The girls are very little consequence in the mind of the India office here in Britain. The boys are forbidden to go. But the girls... Are begging to go, so they keep writing letters. Can we go? Can we go to this party? Everyone's going. Everyone I know is going to this party. Can I go to this party? And they are they are ignored until Bamba takes it on and just starts bombarding the Secretary of State for India. I, you know, demand to go. Just why aren't you answering? And finally they get this answer saying, Look, you can't go yet, because we've got your, we've opened your letters too late, so we can't look after you properly. So I'm sorry, but now is not the time. Well, now is not the time, is not the same as saying no. So these girls who are stronger than their brothers in every way, decide they're going to go anyway because it's not a no. So they sort of smuggle themselves on ships and they end up at the Darbar anyway. But what they find when they go to India, which is shocking to them, is that they don't have a corner of canvas in this great Darbar camp to call their own, even though Punjab was one of the greatest, you know, the Sikh Empire was one of the greatest in India. They have nowhere to stay. It's only the largesse of others who remember who they are. And so for the first time when Sophia goes to India at the turn of the century, she sees things she's never seen before, like racism. In Britain, she is a pin-up princess, but there she's just one of many brown faces. And British officers of the Raj have a very different attitude to the aristocrats that she hobnobs with in Belgravia, and they treat them badly. She also makes a trip to Lahore, which is the capital of the old Sikh kingdom. And for the first time, she sees everything that's been taken away from her family. There isn't a statue of her father. There is not a statue of her grandfather, but there is a statue of Queen Victoria. The roads are called Charing Cross or the (laughs) Mall. You know, and she just, she's trying to make sense of all of this. She's also trying to make sense of the fact that there are Sikhs who are throwing themselves at her feet. You know, it's a young woman's feet saying, just tell us what to do. Do you want us to rise up? We'll do whatever you do. Our lives belong to you. You are the cub of the lion. Just tell us what you want. And she's sort of perplexed by this, but her eyes are open to a different reality now. And I think that's the start. I don't know, Susan, if
0: you agree, but the start of a political awakening. Totally, Anita. And I think, isn't it significant that all this can happen after Victoria's death? The personal tie and a sense of gratitude towards Victoria and their bond, that is gone. Edward's on the throne. She doesn't have that connection. In fact, she might have some reason to blame him for having led her father astray in some ways. But it's totally that experience of visiting India, isn't it? That the scales fall from her eyes, I think... How far she believed in the British rhetoric of a benevolence in their imperial rule over India, I don't know. But certainly it is gone. She sees the poverty. She sees the extreme distress that many of the subjects, loyal subjects, supposedly, of the newly crowned king are living. And she's appalled. Never mind all the things that absolutely, Anita, you said about experiencing racism and being treated like a second-class citizen by the British in her homeland. I mean, it radicalizes her. It is interesting that it isn't the cause of India that is where she turns her sort of radical instincts and her sort of desire to change things. But I feel she, she has this sense of betrayal by the British state and it's a pivotal moment for her. And going back to our discussion of her as the compliant the smiley easy to get along with little girl you would never pick her as being the troublemaker but there's something to be said that her sister was always sort of open to the fact mm-hmm. that the british were not being honest in their dealings but sophia i think felt betrayed and let down and hence the particular ang- well determination she just thinks this is something that needs to be sorted. She does, yeah. And it's actually, you know, she has a relationship with India,
2: which she never had before. You know, she had the pretty things that were left over from from Mm. her her father's reign that he could pack into boxes and bring with him. But she sees everything. She sees the whole lot. And so that, that pull to India pulls her back. And when it pulls her back later, we're talking sort of 1908 to 1909 she's exposed to a a growing political movement. Her political awakening is going alongside a nationalist awakening in India. And there are people there who are now for the first time questioning the fact that actually, you know, Indians are greater in number. Why are these people taking everything from here? Why are we, you know, that sort of thought of no taxation without representation, they're paying taxes. They're growing the crops that India wants them to grow. They're, you know, sort of putting up with famines. Why can't they have some say in in what happens? And so you have the start of this call that in India goes, "Avasdo, Avazdol, give us a voice, give us a voice, give us a voice. And when she comes back to Britain after that visit, she hears that same cry, give us a voice, from women in Britain who are also paying taxes, who also have no say in where their taxes are spent, who are also living as second-class citizens in their own family, in their own country. And she finds her cause. That's something she can sign up to. She will fight for these women. And boy, does she.
1: So it's all developing from this point, really. And I, sp- I suppose the fact that she's now into adulthood and is getting to know her own mind and really seeing the wood for the trees. Suddenly she's she's awoken.
2: It's the same cries that she heard from the nationalists. Of, give us a voice. Give us a say. Some kind of say. It's exactly, it was a mirror of what the women of Britain were asking for. They were not enfranchised, they didn't get a vote, they didn't get a say, often they didn't inherit. You know they were second-class citizens in their own country, just as you know she had seen Indians in their own country being treated as second-class citizens. So she gets pulled in. In 1909 is the is the pivotal year where she meets a, a suffragette called Una Dugdale. And you know by this time she's in her 30s. So it is a fairly by our standards today we are radical in our 20s, <laughs> but she's radical in her 30s. And so she becomes involved. First of all, it's using her celebrity status. So, you know, she starts fundraising, inviting women round to talk about the suffragette movement, supposedly making jams and chutneys to sell in sales to raise money. And of course, everyone wants a pot of jam made by a princess. But I doubt she ever set foot in her kitchen, to be honest with you. But she then sort of steps it up. So one of her first I think real defiance is, is, the suffragettes used to take press carts through London, so they would drive these carts festooned with votes for women, banners and placards, and they would often drive them to the roughest parts of town. Drury Lane was a particular favourite, and they knew that if they drove to these places at certain times, at pitching out time from the pubs or the or the music halls, they would be yelled at, screamed at, things would be thrown at them, and they would have a real argy-bargy, but it would get into the papers. And that's what they wanted. They wanted prominence. You know, they are very good propagandists for the cause. Sophia didn't just go along with these press carts. She drove the press carts. So you've got these extraordinary pictures of her in full Parisian couture, (laughs) driving these press carts to drury Lane to have a fight. That was the first toe dip into the water. And then she just keeps stepping it up. Between 1909 and 1914, this woman will do anything she can to try and get arrested and embarrass the state. Emmeline Pankhurst is deploying her like like a weapon of mass destruction wherever she can. You have a, an instance where it's time for the king's speech, and she goes to Downing Street and she has you know sort of this mink muff <laughs> around her hands. And those are the days when you didn't have the gates, you could go right up to the door. And suddenly, as Asquith's car is pulling out and he's in it, she suddenly launches herself at the car and slaps a Votes for Women pamphlet at the window and is dragged off by the police. She ought to have been sent to prison then and there. But the British establishment also know this is dangerous. This is like handling dynamite, because if you imprison a princess of the Sikh empire, you know, Duleep Singh's daughter, what message is that sending to India? that this little five foot nothing of a slip of a girl is defying the state. They worry that it's going to actually awaken Indians and, and an already rest of India, this spark of revolution in defiance. So they try and bury the story wherever they, they can. You know, she will be picked up, but she will not be sent to prison. And she wants her day in court. So again, she keeps stepping up. There is a very shameful episode in, in British history, I believe. And Susan, I'm sure, I'm sure you're up on this too, but Black Friday in 1910 is an appalling day. The, the suffragettes have come as close as they ever will be to getting the vote. But Asquith, who has just this blind spot for women being given the vote, guillotines the amount of time this bill has to pass. So he's in, in effect killing the bill. So Emmeline Pankhurst decides she's going to lead this march on Westminster and hammer on the door and make Asquith explain himself. But there is a problem in the law has changed. It is illegal to march en masse now because the Home Secretary at the time, name you might recognise, Winston Churchill, is not having it anymore. So you're not allowed to march in groups of more than 12. So the suffragettes decide they're going to get through this. They've got a clever way. They're going to go in detachments of 12 every five minutes. So they're not breaking any ordinance, but they will all gather at St. Stephen's Gate. The first group are rock star suffragettes. So you've got Emmeline Pankhurst, you have got Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who's Britain's first mayor and also Britain's first doctor. You've got a woman called Dorinda Nelligan, who is a revolutionising education for women. Another woman called Mrs. Saul Solomon, who is married to one of the great statesmen from South Africa, and Sophia de Leap Singh. And they walk shoulder to shoulder to St. Stephen's Gate. The first group arrives, you know, the square is packed with people because Every time the suffragettes are going to do something, they, they trail it in the papers first. And there's no telly, <laughs> not much to do. So people just crowd in to see the spectacle. So the, the area around Westminster, the green, and everywhere you see TV presenters doing stand-ups now, it's packed with people. The crowds pass, and they let this first group through, which makes Emmeline think, OK, we're fine. We're going to be OK. We can, we can do this. This demonstration will occur. As soon as the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth these groups arrive, they are set upon by police on horseback and plainclothes police officers and men who've just come to have a laugh at the suffragette's expense. And they are not arrested. That's the problem. So Winston Churchill doesn't want them arrested because they'll clog up the courts and they'll make a great hoo-ha and it's going to be embarrassing. So instead, the order goes out that they should be exhausted and sent back, which gives all of these police officers, plainclothes and uniformed, licensed to brutalize these women and i mean physically punch kick throw to the ground but sexually assault as well i mean it is absolutely heartbreaking there is a an inquiry that goes into this by a man called henry brailsford later boxes and boxes of the most appalling testimony women of all ages talking about having their clothes ripped hands and legs put up between their legs their breasts grabbed i mean it is meant to humiliate and sophia at the gate sees one particular woman. She doesn't know who she is, but she's a suffragette who's being picked up and thrown to the ground. And the suffragettes, the problem is they don't exhaust. They don't give up. And she gets up again, and she's hurled to the ground again, and she gets up again, and Sophia's thinking, my God, if this man keeps doing this, she's going to die. So she manages to get through what we today would call a kettle. You know, she and the rock star suffragettes are pinned up by the gate. She's tiny. She manages to slip out, and she pops up, in between this woman and this police officer who's about to chuck her down on the ground again, and body checks him off. And this man, you've got to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. This is like somebody of the fame of Meghan Markle popping up in a demonstration who is body checking you in the middle of a riot. So he lets go of the woman and he walks away. Now, most of us would chalk that up to a great win. Excellent. We just, you know, we have saved somebody, not her. She follows him into the riot screaming at him give me your number i want your number give me your number because then as now police officers wear identifying numbers on their epaulets And mm-hmm. it's only when she sees the number v700 that she lets him go and she is going to complain about that man i mean she gets punched and kicked she gets bruises but not about her own treatment but about the treatment of this suffragette and she takes it all the way up all the way up through the police station then she takes it to the, you know, the head of the Metropolitan Police. Then it goes all the way up until, you know, there is a document which just says rather angrily, send no more response to her. And it's signed WSC, Winston Spencer Churchill. She is getting up everybody's nose at this point.
1: That is astonishing and shocking. What did the British establishment think of this young girl who then grew up into a, a rebellious troublemaker. They must have thought we had her moulded, and now she's gone completely off on one. I suppose they they must have thought we've lost control of her now, and we're also losing control of the situation. What do you think, Susan?
0: She was an aggravation, and she knew how much power she had. And the fact that, as Anita's already outlined, there is only so far that the British establishment could punish her And I think this is something that she was very canny at using. Hence, she's quite happy to write to Winston Churchill as uh, head of the Home Office. There's nobody she is afraid of. And it's this sense of sisterhood. And she's doing it for others, just as we hear about that poor suffragette woman, her, her ally being knocked to the ground. She intervenes to protect her. She knows she's not going to suffer the horror of being arrested and slammed into Holloway prison and go through the agonies of force feeding that many of her suffragette comrades are doing. She knows that's not for her. So it just forces her to fight using the weapons she has, using her prominence, her Kardashian star quality, as we've heard from Anita, and particularly in the form of a tax resistance. Now, the suffragettes, it mustn't be forgotten, were part of just one side of the campaign to secure the vote for women. There were also those who didn't believe in direct action, but in negotiation, that often they combined forces for mass marches, but they took different approaches. And these women who were using every tactic available to them, and one of the things in which, funnily enough, women were given some sort of equality is paying of local taxes, taxation. And so in 1909, the Women's Tax Resistance League was founded. And this is something that Sophia could get behind. So she refused to pay her taxes, ironically, at the home that she's getting from the British state at Hampton Court. And it leads to extraordinary scenes where, because she refuses to pay her taxes, the law of taxation means that she's pursued for these debts. And so she has bailiffs knocking at the door, coming in to seize property, in lieu of the taxes that she hasn't paid. And she's brought before the courts. It's an extraordinary moment at Felton Police Court. This extraordinary princess is brought before for non-payment of taxation. So you could not get better publicity for outlining the absurd situation in which women were expected to be half citizens and not be granted full citizenship in the sense of being given the vote. And this is, I mean, I would say just on reflection, it's such an interesting time for women, because on the one hand, women are allowed to vote in local elections at this point. And as a historian, it's absolutely terrific to see in the electoral registers for this period, that women have a local vote, but they're not allowed to vote in parliamentary elections. I should qualify that by saying women of certain property—we are talking about upper-middle class women of independence—means and middle class, not across the whole population. So it's it's a transitional period, and I think this is one of the things that really fuels the anger amongst Princess Sophia and many, so many others. The question of women getting the vote has been raised since the 1860s. This is 50 years. We're not getting anywhere. We have to try every means. And if that means direct action in the forms of breaking windows and arson attacks on pillar boxes, post boxes, which increasingly are used by the Women's Social and Political Union led by the Pankhurst, so be it. You've heard us. As, as Anita said, it's about hear our voice and the British establishment's refusal to listen does mean that these extraordinary women diversify their action. I mean, it's an object lesson in how to conduct a political campaign.
2: I think actually, she did want to go to prison. I think she would, I mean, as far as a propaganda coup would be concerned, it would be amazing, but they won't. They won't send her to prison. No. I mean, you know, you could get arrested, you know, other women of, of lower social standing are being arrested for not paying their taxes all the time. But she isn't. She does this other thing, which women also could be sent to prison for, which is not filling in your census. In 1911, Britain prided itself on having the best bureaucracy and having a census that meant something. The women of the suffragette movement decide, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to cooperate. So many women go and they hide that day, because you know at that point it's sort of census takers coming to your door with a clipboard. So they just simply disappear. One very famously hides in a cupboard in the House of Commons, because she, you know, she takes some meat lozenges and some, some lemon juice to, to sustain her through the night, because she wants to disappear and say in the morning, ta-da, I was always here where women belong in the House of Commons. Sophia waits at our house at, at Hampton Court for the census taker to come, and then very calmly, she graffitis across her census paper. No taxation without representation if women do not count, nor should they be counted. I have a conscientious objection to filling this census. And again, you know, other women could be taken away for that, but she is not. So I think I don't think she does it thinking that she's immune. I think she does it desperate to be arrested. Because, you know, even when Susan was talking about those direct actions, and I think it's probably quite resonant with what's happening even these days with just-off-oil, they were deemed to be a pain and a menace in society when they start pouring potassium permanganate into pillar boxes to destroy everyone's mail people start turning against them when they start making bombs people turn even more against them when they blow up lloyd george's house you know it's unspeakable how can you do that but she turns up to court all the time knowing the daily mail in particular are going to take her picture and she supports these women who are now you know becoming so extreme that, as Susan said, a lot of the more moderate suffragettes are kind of washing their hands of them, including some of the rock star suffragettes like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who, who led that Black Friday march with Sophia.
1: What was the response from Sophia's family and also the royal family?
2: By this time, it's King George V who is on the throne. And he is sick of this woman. Oh, my God. God, this woman. And he writes these increasingly vexed letters to the Secretary of State for India saying, Can we not do something about her? Can we not tear her out of, of Hampton Court, this ungrateful woman? And the Secretary of State for India turns around and says, You know what? If you want to do that, you do that. Because he knows if he does that, again, that message will go back to India. This slip of a girl, this princess of the Sikh Empire, is being thrown into the street, but she's defiant. She has never stepped back. And so they feel they can't throw her out. It's not for love.
1: Politically paralysed.
2: They hate her. They absolutely loathe her. But Mm. they they can't do it because of the ramifications back in India.
1: Well, let's move on to World War I. uh, Breaks out in 1914, of course. How did Sophia respond to that? Because she was very much supporting the men, wasn't she, in in that period, Anita? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, she, she, like many of the suffragettes, not all of them, but many of the suffragettes, just drop the rocks when World War One breaks out and they decide they're going to get behind the war effort. And for Sophia, this is particularly meaningful because some of the first troops that are moved to the Western Front are from India, Indian troops who have never probably been out of the warmth and heat and heat of their own climate. And they're suddenly dropped into these freezing, muddy, rat infested trenches, not even with the right boots and and uniforms on sometimes. So she makes it her business first and foremost to raise money for them. They are fighting for Britain. So, you know, she's doing something patriotic. She has these flag days. So she starts to sell flags for flag day to raise money for these men and, and all men. And she starts to sort of up the ante a lot. She makes a lot of money because, you know, of course, everyone wants to buy a pin from a princess. But then she starts inquiring. I love this as well, Susan. I, I was, some documents are so thrilling. She does an application to the Metropolitan Police asking if she can borrow an elephant from the zoo and march it up Oxford Street because she thinks it's going to make a lot of money. And her efforts are so successful. I mean, she's doing so well with the fundraising that, again, the British state, instead of feeling grateful, <laughs> gets slightly apoplectic. Because the message is a difficult one for India, that, you know, the British state is sending Indian boys to die, and here is an Indian princess raising money for their boots and their coats. So they try and take the credit away from her. They try and give it away. They get the YMCA involved, and they say, you take the credit for what she's doing. Let her carry on, but it should be under your name. And it's only when actually one of the most senior officers in the British Army writes to the Times and says... We owe a great debt of gratitude to Princess Sophia D'Aleep saying that 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 jig is up. But she doesn't just raise money. She also dons a nurse's uniform and she goes to Brighton where some of the first casualties are being brought in, these sort of broken men. And she starts to treat them in hospitals. And this is also, I think, one of the most moving moments in this story is that these sort of Indian soldiers who are knocked out on opiates, who open their eyes and possibly have lost a limb. And, you know, they haven't seen a woman in months. They haven't seen a brown woman in even longer. And they open their eyes and here is somebody who they say is Maharaja Dalip Singh's daughter, the cub of the lion, Ranjit Singh's granddaughter. And they think they're hallucinating. So she, like some kind of Greta Galbo, (laughs) I don't know how she manages to do it in wartime, manages to get hold of a whole bunch of photographs and ivory mirrors to sign for them so they can send them back home and say, look, I'm not lying and I'm not hallucinating. She's really here. The great tragedy of that moment is that she can't talk to them in their own language because she doesn't know her own language. So she has to turn to white nurses who have served during the Raj who speak fluent Hindustani to translate for her. And I think that, I mean, I just put myself in that position. How sad, how very sad for her.
0: And that patriotism is so widely shared across the suffragette movement. I mean, the Pankhurst themselves, apart from Sylvia, absolutely throw themselves into the war effort. And I always think it's fascinating that it's sort of confounding their critics, that this distraction from mainstream politics, this fury about the vote for women, and it's absolutely categorical, apart from a few outliers, as it were, we are here to support the British war efforts. And it's fascinating, I think, from a point of view of Sophia, that one of her early concerns is her sister Catherine, who is living in Germany in enemy territory. And it is the whole lead up to war as well is immensely complex because of course, this is a country, Britain, Imperial Britain has such close ties with Germany. After all, it's famously a squabble amongst Queen Victoria's grandchildren and the connectedness that we are on the British side. But having said that, the payoff as we know at the end of the war for the suffrage movement is that finally women are granted the vote not totally. We know that doesn't happen until 10 years later in 1928. 1928. But it is that sense of, and it's quite a horrible reflection as a woman to think about, it's sort of a well done you women, you proved yourself, you are actually deserving of the vote. But it is fascinating that moment where Because frankly, as Anita, you rightly described it, this terrorist organisation could have carried on its activities during the war. And my goodness, would that have been disruptive to Mm. the British effort? But that wasn't the zeitgeist, was it?
2: No, I mean, Emmeline Pagas becomes one of the leading recruiters for the British Absolutely,
0: yes. Yeah.
1: There were two expansions of the franchise after the First World War. How did Sophia respond to these, Anita?
2: Well, I mean, she's 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 delighted, but she also loses a cause and she loses the family. You know, that fight was everything to her. She didn't have her sisters. I mean, Catherine comes back, as Susan rightly points out, after the war, but only because Sophia fights to get her back. And so for a while, I think she sort of sinks a little bit. She needs to be needed. She's, I think, psychologically speaking, is somebody who's always at her best when she's fighting for somebody weaker, whether it's... You know, little Edward and her family or fighting for Bamba when she's thrown off a a course in America or women who are demanding the vote. She needs to fight for something. And when she doesn't have a fight, she kind of sinks. She diminishes. I mean, there are letters, worried letters from her sister saying, you know, please eat something. You've stopped eating. You're getting really thin. And weirdly, it is the Second World War. So, you know, she has these great many years of being rather listless and lost. It's the Second World War that, again, brings her to herself because, again, there's somebody who needs her. There are people who need her. And during the Second World War, you know, she's very happy to stay at Faraday House and smoke furiously out of the window during Blitz. She doesn't care. She's not going to go anywhere except her housekeeper, a woman called Bosie, has a little daughter, a baby. And this baby is named Drovna for her. And she's worried about the baby, so she accepts... Catherine's please, because Catherine has gone off to the countryside. She's living in Penn in Buckinghamshire. And she's constantly begging Sophia to come. But it's only when this baby is there that she is, all right, I, I will come. And she goes to Penn in Buckinghamshire. And then she takes on three evacuee children as well. And she is a lioness around these children. She looks after them. She cares about them. She's worried about them. And this, again, is another one of those moments where I feel so sad for her because somebody who was so clearly maternal, never had a family of her own, was always looking for a family. I mean, luckily she has a family. Later in her 50s and 60s, she has somebody to love and to care for, but it shows the mother that she always could have been and maybe would have liked to have been, but it was never for her, being born out of time and out of space. And what is Amazing to me is again. It sounds like you know when Susan and I are talking about how women were disenfranchised in this country. It feels like it's you know it's as far away as the Romans. But I met those evacuee children and interviewed them. I met her goddaughter and I'm still friends with her and talk to her. You are touching the face of that history. It isn't that long ago.
1: Where does Sophia's achievements? and efforts puts her in this pantheon of campaigners for women's suffrage, people like Emmeline Pankhurst, etc.
0: Can I jump in on that one? Is that all right? Yeah, of
1: course. Susan, go ahead.
0: I think she makes such an extraordinarily unique contribution. There is no other suffragette campaigner like her, obviously because of her identity, her background, her profile, but also her intelligence that she brings to solving this problem. How do we shift the immovable. How do we change the views of the government? And I think Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters were the known troublemakers. They were, well what do you expect from these women? You know, and they've been the WSPU was founded in nineteen oh three. I mean that's a good fifteen years worth of campaigning to see it through. But she uses her identity to change the debate and to force the pace, I think, particularly knowing that everything she does is going to be published in the next morning's papers. And that is dynamite. That is the kind of profile that all those small groups of women who gathered locally, who met locally around the country were campaigning. And as we've heard, doing all these protests locally, as well as the major national ones in front of parliament. They needed that. They needed that star status. So, And just in terms of family and what it offered just to, I think, round it off in the sense of what she got out of being part of the suffragette movement is that she joins the fellowship, the suffragette fellowship in the 1920s, when to all extents and purposes, the bulk of their work was done. And she's the one organising the flowers that are laid on the memorial to Emmeline Pankhurst, the statue outside Parliament. That stands there today, and that was erected in 1928. She's the one organising, and that sense of fellow feeling, we went, we experienced something together. And that perhaps answers uh, what Anita's been saying about the missing the family life that she found her family there. So tremendously important. And with a blue plaque going on the home where she lived throughout this period, albeit with breaks for trips to the country homes of her brothers. There is nothing more sort of telling, more speaking than that combination of the plaque and the house. And as people walk past that house and see the plaque and think, well, who was that? And she she was living there when she was doing that. And that is always a joy with an English Heritage Blue Plaque to be able to pinpoint that moment, that period and evoke that. And as Anita said, it is not that long ago.
1: And it was evoked very nicely on the day that the blue plaque was unveiled at Faraday House near Hampton Court in May 2023. She was at Faraday House for how long exactly?
0: It lasted from the 18 mid-1890s. We can't be exactly precise when she moved in until her final years, albeit she is spending more of her time, as Anita said, living out in Buckinghamshire during the war for the reasons explained. But it remains her home over what a period, what a span of change and time to span two world wars as well as when she moved there, Victoria was on the throne. And when she dies, my goodness, what a different world it is in the 1940s.
1: Throughout this podcast, we've been describing, you know, a very varied character who has become very important. Why has she been forgotten then, do you think, Anita?
2: I think it's true that women's history just falls through cracks. Men have been historians, and they write about wars, and they write about men in uniform, largely, or men in government. And women have only been allowed in a sphere of decision-making, as we've said, Susan and I, fairly recently. So women fall through the cracks. Women of colour plummet through those cracks. And the fact that when India gained its independence, it also had no time for Maharaja's children anymore. You know, they had their new pantheon of royalty in in Gandhi and Nehru and Jinnah. So, you know, they weren't championing her cause. She didn't do herself any favours either. You know, the who's who came to her and asked her for an entry. And she gave them one line. If you look at most tutu's entries, they're, they're just filled with banality of went to school here, did this, did that, like this. But she only gave one line under interests. She wrote The Achievement of Women. And I think that didn't help either. So she was sort of lost. And then, you know, I wrote the book and I was delighted by how she was reclaimed. And, you know, even before the plaque, she managed to be on a royal male stamp all by herself. So you had this irony of the very picture that would have got her into trouble with King George V, with her sandwich board outside Hampton Court, where that blue plug is now attached, selling votes for women, with an image of Queen Elizabeth II in the corner. (laughs) So I think she's been
0: reclaimed, and I'm very delighted about it.
1: Susan, why do you think it's so important that we remember Sophia G. Leap Singh's story today?
0: Well, I think it's not taking anything for granted, any of the political gains, as we would see it. Obviously, votes for women is, as a woman, that's incredibly close to my heart. It is recent history. And that was the message that Sophia would want us to think about, is don't ever not vote. Use that power. It's only recently achieved. And these things are fragile. These sort of leaps forward in what seems to be a progressive, move through history, are not gained automatically. They are fought for, they are striven for. And she would also, I think, ask us to remember the women who suffered on account of the resistance, the endless resistance of the British state to allowing women equality in in parliamentary elections. And it's only, I think, reasonable to compare her a little bit to another suffragette who was honoured by English Heritage this year, who lost her life. Emily Wilding Davison, who famously was killed as a consequence of being hit by one of the horses at the Derby in 1913. And, you know, it's an absolute privilege to read the story of these lives and to be thankful as a woman for what they achieved and how they just didn't give up. And that, I think, is fundamentally plaques are meant to inspire, to educate, to really bring us sense of the past and how we just cannot take our lives for granted. And that's my, that's my personal take on it.
1: And a final thought from you, Anita, perhaps the issue of pursuing interests for women of colour as well, not just women in general.
2: Well, I think she, she was pursuing British women, the rights for British women. But I think it's so important for anybody who is a British Asian to know that we've been here a long time. And we've been doing good things. And again, as Susan said, if not for the sacrifice and the fight of these women, who knows where we'd be.
1: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to put your questions about the English Civil War and the Restoration to our experts. for listening. See you next time.